Good morning. I want to welcome you here uh, this Saturday morning to Endeavor Hill. Uh, it's good to see some familiar uh, people here. And uh, if you are new here, I would like to connect with you after the service. I'm not trying to sell you anything or, or anything like that. I just would like to connect with you. Um, so stay after the service. Um, I just want to just really uh, extend a warm welcome to you. And, and uh, just it's good to see uh, all the faces. Today, we are going to uh, continue our journey through the book of Romans. Uh, today, we are going to look at Romans uh, chapter 4. But really, we're going to tie in uh, a lot back to a, a, a story in the Gospels in Luke chapter 7. But uh, today's uh, title is Simon Says and Simon Does. Uh, let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you for everyone um, that has been praying for Endeavor Hill and that has helped and, and assisted in mighty ways. And Lord, I want to just thank you for everything you've done in our lives. So many of our friends and families and, and uh, colleagues are struggling right now through this time. And Lord, whatever your will is, help us to know it and see it, but help us to move forward with your gospel in this community. We ask that you pour out um, your Holy Spirit on us now as we come and encounter you. And Lord, let my words not be what's important, but your words. Thank you for guiding us and continue to grow us, continue to expand um, this church body and grow intimately in, in communion with you and each other. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Our anchor text today is Luke 7.50. And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I want you to... Uh, take a time and I want you to imagine. Imagine you are in a house in the evening hours. It's stucco or adobe or Middle Eastern feel for it. So it's in the desert. It's cooler in the, in the desert in the evenings. There's no electricity and the flickering shadows dance along the walls as you and several others sit around massive carpets on the floor. There is laughing and whispering and joking and subtle conversations taking place. Everyone is eating and drinking. You see everyone continuously looking over to check and see what Jesus is doing. You are not surprised that there is not anything that stands out about Jesus. He has long hair, a beard, both of which look a little greasy and dirty. He is average looking. He has strong features, dark skin, dark hair, and yet he has a presence about him and everyone notices. Seated around him are a wealthy man. You can tell because his clothes are much nicer than Jesus' and in fact they are much nicer than almost everyone in the room. He is also much cleaner. Those who are serving you all seem uneasy around this particular gentleman. One thing that you notice is that all the women in the room are seated in their own place at the farthest part away from Jesus and nearly everyone else. In walks a woman, however. She has beautiful hair and future features. Her cheeks are wet from crying. She is quiet as she comes into the room. The rich man, whose house you seem to be in, gets extremely uneasy. She ignores everyone and walks straight over to Jesus. She kneels down in front of him and pours out an oil that instantly fills the room with the sweetest fragrance you have ever smelled in your life. Jesus simply does nothing. She then uses her hair to clean Jesus' feet. 
You see her long, beautiful locks of hair rubbing Jesus' dirty feet. Feet that are worn, scarred, and dirty. I want you to hang on to this image and story as we talk today. Last week we looked at rethinking the law. Over the next several weeks as we dive into the book of Romans, we are going to examine the Old Testament law and how it relates to us as New Testament believers. We also looked at the fact that we are found righteous solely because of our faith in Jesus. We are able to be saved solely because of our faith in Jesus. We live differently and are transformed because we have surrendered to Jesus and not the law. We live what Jesus lived. We live what Jesus taught, what he commanded in over 139 commandments and teachings in the Gospels, and we looked at every single one of those. We look squarely at Jesus because he accomplished, he embodied, he became the law because the law came out of Jesus. When we look around Jesus at the Old Testament law, when we see him there and we peek around and apply it to our lives, we are ignoring the creator of the law and we are bypassing its very purpose. Stephen's lost it. He's saying that we shouldn't read the Old Testament and that its rules do not apply to us. I know someone is going to and probably is thinking that at this very moment. Nothing could be further from the truth. There is a deep meaning and wisdom in the Old Testament. Yet we need to desperately understand as a church that we live today under a new covenant, a new testament. Oftentimes we forget that or, or try to muddle it down. In Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, Jesus or, or God outlines the new covenant to Jeremiah that we are under today. Starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And that is the new covenant laid out for us in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. We as a church and as a people study the Old Testament and Old Covenant law in order to understand the important truths therein. We study to understand that God has always had a plan of redemption and salvation peering through the parts of the Old Testament. Jesus appears throughout the law and the prophets. We study the Old Covenant in order to learn from their mistakes, hopefully in order to realize that if they, who directly interacted with God, failed deeply, even though they had entire sections of Scripture memorized, we need to be cautious ourselves of our own walk with God, and our own view of God, and our own view of people. We study to see the great principles that should be applied to our lives as believers, such as Sabbath, which draws us here today, stewardship, 
justice, mercy, and kindness. If we do not study the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, we lose out and we will never fully realize the significance and the blessings of the New Covenant, which we live under, the gospel that liberates each and every one of us. Sadly, many today will focus on the law and stand the cross right up next to the Decalogue. That, for the rest of you, is the Ten Commandments. They will place Jesus, many of us do, alongside of the Levitical law and the Decalogue, desperately reaching to blend the two. I want you to hear me out. Jesus embodied is the creator of, a term known as the progenitor of the law. When we look at Jesus and his life, we will see the completeness of the law. We will see its purpose, we will see its fulfillment, and we will see its promise. When we look at the law, we remove Jesus from the equation. We see rules and reg regulations that at their core are impossible to follow. When we look at the law, we... Uh, when we look at the law, we are not allowed to pick and choose what and where we follow in our lives. Often people will pick and choose feasts and, and part of the ceremonial law or parse it up into three parts, and that just simply does not work. When we can look at the law of God and leave God out. We can look at the law of God and miss out on the promise of God. When we focus on living out the law and being a people who follow the law, then, we are, then our lives are not lived on the promise of God and a people pursuing that promise. Paul in Romans chapter 4 discusses the promise made to Abraham. If you don't remember what that promise is, it has two parts. Part 1, Abraham would have a son even in his old age, and through him he would provide the Messiah. Part 2, Abraham would be the father of all nations. This is what um, Paul states in Romans uh, 4.1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Continuing on, chapter, uh, verse 2 through 9. For if Abraham was justified by works, doing the law, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that's Jesus, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, the Jews and those that follow the law, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Paul does not allow Abraham or any of us any sort of wiggle room to tie our works in with our salvation. You can argue it. You can attempt to be a but-um person that I've talked about in earlier sermons that we have often described and discussed. However, Paul leaves absolutely, unequivocally, without a doubt, no room to attach salvation to works. For if Abraham was ju justified, 
able to be saved by works, he would have something to boast about, but not before God. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul continually addresses the legalistic and works-based mindset. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. We have to put the cross, we have to put Jesus between us and the law. We absolutely have to, as a person and as a church body. There isn't any room. When the New Testament talks about works, they are always, always, always talking about how we live according to the law of God. I cannot stress this to you or stress this home enough. We as believers have to put Jesus in front of us. Use our Jesus filters when we look into the New Testament. The cross saves. Jesus saves. Our works pour out as a result of first being saved. Always. There is no but um. There is no if and. This is what Paul is saying in verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, meaning we work and bring it to the cross in order to be saved, but as our due because we've been saved at the cross, we then go. Because we are saved, because we are liberated, redeemed, saved, loved, and forgiven, all because of grace, we live how the one who saved us lived. When we put the law before the cross or on the path to the cross, we make our works as a gift, as I said, in order to be saved or to help help justify us in being saved. We have to place our works down at the cross in hopes that we are saved. That's what many think. Our works do not come from a saved heart, however, but a heart hoping to be saved. And this is not grace. This is squarely self-righteousness. Martin Luther wrote in his commentary on Romans chapter 4, God does not accept the person on account of his works, but he accepts the works on account of the belief of the person. He first accepts the person who believes in him and then works flowing from that heart and faith. Abraham became the father of nations. He received the promise before any of his works we hold so high. We f he first had to believe that there was a creator, that there was a God, that God had to be followed, that God had to be trusted. All of the works of Abraham are important because he first believed in God. Remember where we were earlier. We were in a room, evening, a meal is taking place. A woman has made the room fall silent. She's cleaning Jesus' dirty feet with the most fragrant oil you have ever heard. The rich man thinks to himself, If Jesus really was a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. This story is found in Luke 7, 36-50. Luke 7, 36-50. And I want to unpack it a little bit. The rich man in this story is a Pharisee. The rich man doesn't even acknowledge and even shows doubt that Jesus is a prophet let alone the Son of God, the Messiah. So why is Jesus here at this Pharisee's house? Jesus is at this Pharisee's house in order for the Pharisee to understand, to spy on, to test and observe. 
They, the Pharisees, are following the proverb, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. To them, Jesus is an enemy. The woman is called a woman of the city. In today's terms, she is a prostitute. How did the woman, I want us to look at, how did the woman just walk into the Pharisee's house? He would have had guards, servants, and gates. It is because, according to tradition and what this story is saying, that she was known to the people of the house. She had visited there quite often. How would she have known what room to walk to? And how come, if she was such a stranger, would no one have stood up and said, Who is this woman coming in? It's because, again, she was known to the people of the house. She had visited quite often, and I will just leave it at that. The oil used was very expensive. This woman had sacrificed all she had to put out, pour out, pour it out. Many of us would say, oh, that oil is tainted then, because how did she pay for that? Well, through her works. But Jesus looks at her faith and not anything else. Simon is this very Pharisee, and Simon judges Jesus inwardly without speaking a word, and the woman based on the law. Jesus calls Simon's hypocrisy out by stating that Simon didn't follow the law either and giving him water to wash when he came into the house, part of the mikvah laws. They are both breaking the law. One has just broken it in a more obvious way, which leads us to the story where Jesus says, who is more grateful, the one that's forgiven 50 talents or 100 talents? Jesus demonstrates he is God by knowing and speaking to the inward thoughts of Simon. Jesus shows the Pharisee, however, Simon, grace by not exposing him, saying, Simon, this woman knows exactly where in your house to go. She's welcome in your house without anyone stopping her. I wonder why that is. Jesus shows Simon magnificent grace. Jesus forgives this prostitute and promises her salvation based on the very last words, which are anchor text, based on her faith. Woman, your faith has saved you. The woman isn't saved by even pouring out the oil. She is saved by believing that Jesus is God and pursues him down no matter where he's at, even in a crowded room, then because she honored him by anointing him. She put the cross before the law, the cross before works. She looked squarely at Jesus and acted out of love. Jesus speaks softly to her, your faith has saved you. I want us to go back to Romans 4 now. Romans 4, starting in verse 14 through 16. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and void, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, those doing works, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Simon exemplifies the condition in the church body today. Simon is the prime mindset example many pastors and many members hold in the church today. 
We put Jesus next to us, spending time with Jesus, talking with Jesus, testing Jesus, feeling him out. And yet we will focus on aspects of the law and knowing the law more. We will focus on who is around us and what that does to our status or the status of others around us. We sit and we pass judgment on the men and women and even Jesus who are clearly more sinners than we are. This is the struggle that we at Endeavor Hill seek to challenge and face head on and that the church at large faces. How do you change a mindset? It is prevalent. How do we connect members to Jesus when they've spent so much time with Jesus? Changing the disconnected mindset that many of us have had been deeply rooted in that puts law before cross. A mindset that has caused thousands of Pharisees in our denomination and churches who are not impacted or phased by the very presence of Christ. I want this to settle in. That Jesus, the same God who spoke very directly and in person and knew Abraham and demonstrates that later on in the Gospels, is sitting next to Simon and Simon judges Jesus. God is present and Simon judges him. However, we do it all the time. When we are law-based, we will never feel the conviction to act, to serve, or to love. We will gauge what we need to do and what we are doing. And once we meet a level of law obedience, we have been taught is good enough or we feel is good enough, we will stop. Faith becomes very external and that is exactly where we are at. We will never anoint the feet of Jesus. We will just invite him over. We will see these as great stories and examples. Our mindset needs to be that we need to and want to share, act, and love out Jesus in the community. We need to go and walk into those houses and show Jesus. It takes a daring faith to. It takes the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it takes the encounter with Jesus and the liberation of the Gospels. We need to get plugged into small groups. We need to be involved in building relationships that are intimate and genuine and safe. And sharing the gospel with those around us, our colleagues, our families, our friends. We need to disciple them. How are they going to experience and see the promise of Christ that Abraham received if we aren't out there actively, intentionally, continuously in the community? Currently, our mindset is this. 60% of our walk is on the worship service attendance on Saturday. We have to observe Sabbath. 20% of our walk is on discipleship practices, journaling, uh, reading your Bible, devotionals, all, all that other uh, stuff that comes along with it, prayer. 20% of our walk is on hospitality. And I would say this is probably not even so. 20% of our walk is on hospitality as far as we feel comfortable. It's the potlucks. Maybe we once in a while have friends or we'll go over to friends' houses. Our mindset needs to be, and we seek to be this here, even amongst a global pandemic and an uh, increasing population that is suspicious of organized religion, is our mindset needs to be 30% of our walk needs to be hospitality and active and intentional involvement in our community. We need to be inviting people over to our homes. 
We, no matter how clean they are, people don't really care. And if they care more about that, then it's fine. But we need to have 30% of our lives need to be hospi- hospitality and active and intentional and involved in our com- communities. 50% of us needs to be, of our walk needs to be on small groups, getting there, even though we'll get there and say, oh, I've had a long day. That's just the devil giving you an excuse. Go and connect with your connect groups. And 50% along with that is uh, doing uh, discipleship practices. Journaling, praying, reading substantial amounts of scripture. Honestly, you can read two chapters at length in your Bible a day and journal, and you can give God about a half an hour. Most of us spend half an hour like that going through TikTok or Instagram or Facebook. Then the last 20% is actually only about worship service attendance, is where we go and fellowship together and celebrate and support and hold each other accountable and and acknowledge and work together and come and, and rejuvenate by encountering God. The promise that was made to Abraham, the gospel promise, a promise of liberation and redemption, a promise that when believed and hoped causes a transformed life. When we as a church realize, pursue, and allow the Holy Spirit to transform us according to the promise, we will be the woman anointing the feet of Jesus, crying and kneeling before him, seeking him out, pursuing him. We have to be like Abraham, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours, Paul writes. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our, ju- um, our justification. Examine which faith you have. Then decide the faith that you want to have. Do you want an active faith? A faith that gives you more than you have now? A faith that is grounded in Jesus? A faith that continually pushes you and calls you deeper into action and experience? A faith that is tested and made stronger with every trial? And trust me, you are going to face trials and sufferings the more you experience a deeper faith. Do you want a faith that saves the faith of abraham and the faith of the woman who anointed jesus's feet saved them does your faith save you keep jesus squarely in front of you allow yourself to be transformed trusting and listening to the new covenant inviting the holy spirit to empower and to use you each of us have a choice to be a church of pharisees to be a church of simons or a church of disciples, a church of imperfect sinners who continuously and intentionally seek to pour out all we have at Jesus' feet because of who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. We can be a church that is welcoming, that we can recline at, yet a church that quietly and subtly judges, where appearances are not what they seem. We can be a church with limits, 
or Endeavor Hill can be people that are safe for sinners to come in tears and imperfections and find Jesus and every single member from the moment they encounter us as greeters or in the parking lot or in our homes and in our lives and in our work. What can set us apart is our faith. What does set us apart is our faith. A person and even a church can follow each and every one of the commands of God, following biblical truth, and still crucify Jesus. It was done before 2,000 years ago, and it has been done many times over since. We are a church that sets our sights on Christ and the gospel, and we walk by extreme faith, being led into deeper community, humbled into deeper action, deeper transformation, and a deeper encounter with God. Lord, I ask that you, whoever listens to this and whoever hears this, and myself and my family, that you convict us and send your Holy Spirit, pour out on Bremerton and Paulsbo and, and uh, Port Orchard and the surrounding areas and Silverdale and, and pour out your Holy Spirit and make a movement among all the churches and among us here. Help us to have faith and to grow deeper and to push past our excuses because you saved us. Convict us of our deep need because honestly the only way to change a mindset is through you, Lord, and only through your Holy Spirit. It's going to be rough. It's going to be hard. We're going to be challenged. Give us the humility and the love, the grace, the mercy, and the forgiveness, and the understanding each and every time. Thank you, Lord, and continue to bless us in your name. Amen.